So we are in a series called Renew on the books of First and Second Chronicles. This is our third message uh, today in this series. And so if you are familiar with Chronicles or unfamiliar, and you've maybe never read it before, if you look at it in the Bible, you'll see that it's, it's very long, 65 chapters in the book of Chronicles. It's, it's one book that is, because it's so long, it's divided into two books in our, in our Bibles. Uh, we're not going to go through every one of these chapters, all 65 chapters. Instead, we're going to be looking at select stories and passages in Chronicles. Uh, but what is it all about? Chronicles is a book that was written to bring about a renewal, a renewal of heart, a renewal of mission. It was written to guide people into a rediscovery of who am I, a rediscovery of our true identity as seen through the message of Scripture, as well as a rediscovery of why we're here. Why has God made the world? Why has God made me? And what does He call me to do? And it's especially written for people who are in the midst of disappointment, who know what it's like to be disillusioned, disillusioned with faith and life, people who experience disenchantment and doubt, the four Ds, you could call those. Now, isn't that all of us to some extent? Periods of disappointment in our lives, sometimes feeling disillusioned with who we are and losing touch and maybe feeling a lot of doubt. Why am I here anyway? Am I doing the right thing? Am I engaged in the right things, how will I know if this is what God has called me to? There's an Israeli scholar, her name is Sarah Yefet. She um, has taught at Hebrew University in, in Israel, and she has really devoted her entire scholarly life to Chronicles. And she's written this massive, fat commentary that I have on the book. Um, and it's a, great, it's a great commentary. But in, in the beginning of the book, she says, this is what Chronicles is all about. This is how I would summarize the message. It's written to address what she calls the gap, the gap in our lives. You could say this gap, uh, for those of us who are Christians, is a gap between our lives and the Bible, what it says, the life it describes, the life that I'm called to a life of transformation, of closeness with God, and then my experience and my circumstances and some of my disappointment. Often it feels like that gap is very large. And for those of us here this morning who may not be Christians, I think the experience of this gap is common no matter what your belief system, no matter what your background, where you're coming from. We all experience this gap. There's a gap between our dream Our dream life, life as we imagine it should be, and reality, or the gap between uh, what we hope for and what is. And there are certain times in our lives where we really feel this gap, sometimes when we go through a big change in our lives, Uh, sometimes when we experience setbacks and trials and difficulties, it seems like this gap is huge. But isn't isn't it true that this is also something that we feel in some of our best moments in life? when we succeed, when we achieve our goals. There is a gap between what we thought it would bring us and what it does. Um, 
Thomas Merton is, was a monk, so he said something very monkish about this, and I want to share what he said. He said, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top, the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall, and there's a gap. Even in our greatest moment of success, what we thought it would bring and what it does. If you're not into monks, then maybe Bruce Springsteen will connect with you. He said it maybe like a rock star would say it. He said, I've spent my life judging the distance between American reality and the American dream. Chronicle says, right into these moments, when we experience this gap, God can bring us, and God wants to bring us, a renewal of faith, a rediscovery of our identity and our purpose. And our passage this morning says that one of the main ways that God does it and he meets us in those gap moments in our lives is through his promise, through the power of his promise. And the message titled today is A Promise of Renewal. It's really one of the most important passages in all the Bible. Now, there's a corresponding passage in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, From this point, the story of the Bible is never the same. It's all written in light of this promise that God makes to David here. And the promise gives us something we'll always have in the gap, no matter what the difficulty is, no matter what our disappointment. But for us to believe in and hold on and see this promise, for it to renew us and bring us hope and joy, especially in these gap moments, we need to see three things that can keep us from experiencing the power of God's promise. And so I want to look at those three things with you this morning. The first is God's promise and immediate results, the promise Secondly, invisible results. And thirdly, the promise and achievable results. Let's talk about the background first. So look again at verse 1 in chapter 17. This what's happening. David has settled into his palace. He's in his home. Things are very good for him, but he says to the prophet Nathan, Look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of the Lord's covenant is under a tent. We need a little bit of background to understand why, what's going on there. What's the problem? What's the situation? We've jumped in Chronicles from chapter 12 all the way to 17. So we've skipped a number of chapters. In those chapters, 13 through 16, they're mainly about David's first major project. After he became king, he united Israel. He said, the first thing we need to do is go and get the Ark of the Covenant. And he was laser focused on this goal. He was like, this is, I know this is the right thing. For us to do. So what, what's the deal with the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, if you were here about a year ago, uh, Isaac Blois gave us a great sermon on the Ark of the Covenant. If you missed it, you may have seen the Ark in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And you know it's the box that if you open this box, it will melt your face <laughs> and your entire body. And that is uh, somewhat accurate. In the story of the Old Testament, the ark was one of the most important symbols for Israel. Maybe it was the most important symbol. It was meant to be the center of the the life of the community and the nation. It was to be in the most holy place in the tabernacle. Why? It was a symbol of God's rule. It was a symbol that God is present here with his people. And inside were the most important reminders of the relationship that God had with his people, uh, the tablets of the covenant that were the guide for the people and what it means to love God and love each other, love people. 
the Ten Commandments. So the ark was a symbolic reminder to the king and everyone, life revolves around God. He is the center. And the center of our lives is the covenant relationship we had with him. So David said, this is how we need to start. We need to get the ark first, and we need to bring it. So he did get the ark, and we're going to jump in at that point in the story. Beginning with the first point, the promise and immediate results. What David learned here is also what we need to learn about how God's promise works, his promise of renewal. And I'm going to share it up front, and then I'm going to show us how we see that in the text. And and that's this. This is how God works. He renews us in times of preparation just as much as in seasons of completion. God renews us in times of preparation just as much as in seasons of completion. To experience renewal of heart and mission, we need to learn not to expect or to demand immediate results from God and from our faith. And to do that requires hope. It requires trust in His promise. So let's go back to the sequence of events here in the story. He had this very focused and set plan. I will unite the people I will gather my army, I will secure the capital, I will get the ark, and then I will build the temple. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Just look at that again with me. When David lived in his house, he said to Nathan, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And we read that at first we think that David is being very humble here. He's being very spiritual. How can I live in a better house than God? It's a tent versus a palace. But I think we need to see that there's probably more going on here. In the ancient Near East, in the time of David, in the time of Israel during this time, temple building was something that was common. This was standard practice. This was the expected final step for any real king. All other kings showed their legitimacy When they arrived, when they gained power, when they finally established themselves, they built a temple to their God, to the deity of their tribe or their nation. And that was a symbol to everyone, I am legit, and we are a legit people, and my God is also legit. So David is following the script of all other nations and kings and gods of his day, and he's essentially saying, God, in order for us to show the world that we are for real... We better build a temple, or else people will think that we're not the real deal. And so even Nathan, who is a prophet of God, he hears God's plan, and he's like, do it. God is with you, bro. That's my paraphrase of what Nathan says. He's like, of course. That's what everybody does. But then later that night, the word of God came to Nathan. He said this. Again, paraphrase, yes, this is a good idea, but you need to tell David something. Not now, and not you. Not now, and not you. The first time since David became king, he experienced this no and not, not now from God. When it came to this, this final and crowning achievement of his kingdom, the final step, God said to David, you are called to the work of preparation, not to the work of completion. You will not go down in history as the one who built the temple. Instead, from the time of its construction until the end of time, as it's known still today to us, 
It's called Solomon's Temple, your son. So there's a prayer after this. If you, if you have your Bibles open, you'll be able to see that in 16 through 27. And in this prayer, um, David is responding to what God has to say. And the, for the first time as I was studying this passage, I was somewhat familiar with this prayer, I realized that this prayer, it wasn't a prayer of thanksgiving, actually. It's not really a prayer of praise either. It's a prayer of acceptance. It's a prayer of submission that David is praying in response to what Nathan told him. In Chronicles, we'll see this as we go forward, David's legacy, his greatness, the model he left behind is that from this point forward, he gives himself all out to this project. He gives himself all out to every detail of setting this up, the process of preparing this so that one day, when he's dead, when he's gone, his son can complete the temple project. And so the, you could say the greatest work of renewal in Israel's history, the temple, was a result of David taking a long-term view, of accepting his role of prep preparation. And so the lesson, again, for us is that the work of preparation is just as important as the work of completion. This was huge for the people to whom Chronicles was written. They were experiencing major, major disappointment. They were experiencing major letdown because they had carried all these promises of all that the prophets had written about their time, about their day. When you return to the land of Israel, it's going to be incredible. But their experience was not matching up. And I think God was saying to them and saying to us, many of you will be called to the work of preparation, not the work of completion. You'll be doing groundwork for other people to build on. So let's, let's ask and step back and, and ask, how does this apply to our lives? I think at least one way it applies to us is, is, is this. Much of our disappointment in life, much of our disillusionment in faith is a failure on our part to see the significance of the work of preparation because we feel the strong tug of instant gratification, of immediate results. Never before in the world have we had instant access to so many things. There's so much that's good about this. When there's a disaster somewhere in the world, we can route resources and money to help. We have news, you know, at, at our fingertips. We have Amazon Prime. That's a wonderful thing. It shows up on your doorstep magically the next day. But what, what impact does that have? The, this impact of an immediate results culture, of an instant gratification culture, what impact does that have on, on the spirit? What impact does that have on our soul. I think it's one of the major tensions of our time. I, was, I can't remember who said this, but the, the tension of our day could be described like this. You're going to Whole Foods, but on your way to Whole Foods, you stop through the drive-thru. You believe in slow and organic food, but you also want that instant gratification. Since we're talking about eating a whole hog next month, um, I wanted to, to bring up the way that psychologists describe this phenomena 
of instant gratification. They actually use the acronym PIG. That's a connection to eating, eating the whole pig. But the pig is the problem of immediate gratification. It refers to this universal principle that immediacy is more important than the magnitude of the payoff when it comes to influencing behavior. If we can have it now, we just want it now. Even if we wait, the payoff is better. And as I was reading this, it said, this is especially true for animals, children, and impulsive adults. So I'll let you, I'll let you decide whether you fall into that category. Um, you know, there's, there's some studies that have been done. Uh, the Scientific American was noting this study that had been done at the Wa- Washington University in St. Louis and discovered that patient people were able to wait because they activated that part of the brain devoted to imagining the future. The more they were able to activate that brain, and when that part of their brain was, you know, was registering on the scale, they were the ones who were able to hold off and wait. And, and this article said, the more fuzzy the future was to people, the less powerful it was for them to delay their gratification. What is David doing... What is David hearing here from God? What is God doing here for David? He's painting a picture of the future based on his promises. Promises how God paints us a clear picture of the future. And God says, you will not build me a house. I will build you a house. I will build you a dynasty, a kingdom that will be forever. In David's prayer, if you look at that prayer, we realize that he he got it. He understood. He had a clear picture of the future. And he went from looking at immediate results to seeing his life, to seeing his work as part of a much larger picture, as part of a much larger story. His timeline was completely altered. In his prayer, we see he went from God, it's time to build the temple now, to the very end of his prayer, when he says, you've been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it might continue forever. Before you, for it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. So his timeline went from now to forever, a timeline of eternity. And in order for us to keep at the work of preparation, we need that promise of completion. And in one respect, Christianity teaches us that our entire lives are preparation. That we, we can accept this reality that in many ways, we'll never experience the full completion of all that God promises us because the promise of completion is sure and certain. One verse that brings this out and clarifies it for us is Philippians 1.6. It says this, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And if we can live in that, it can set us free from perfectionism, idealism, triumphalism, having arrived-ism, all the isms that keep us from renewal, that lead us and keep us in disappointment. One of my favorite innovations in our instant gratification world is the tracking number system. When you order a package on Amazon or wherever, and you get it from FedEx, you get a tracking number. And so you never have to guess where your package is. It tells you, oh, it's in the warehouse. Okay, it's on the truck. 
It's in the warehouse in Northern California, and then you're like, oh, it's coming closer. Yeah, it's coming. And it's in Orange County. It'll be here. And then they'll tell you it is actually on your doorstep. Philippians 1.6 can give us our tracking system, our tracking number, in order for us to experience renewal in process, that what God has begun, He will continue to do in our lives, and He will bring it to completion. So just a question on this point. For all of us to consider, where might God be calling me to give myself all out for the work of preparation, leaving the timing of completion into his hands? Where might that be for you? The promise and immediate results. I also want to talk about the promise and visible results. Through Nathan, God delivered this twofold correction to David. If you look at verse 4, he says, It's not now, it's not going to be you. And then, secondly, in verse 5, he says, Well, why do you think I wanted a house anyway? Look at verse 5 and 6 again. He says, I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. I've gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. God says, I don't mind living in a tent. And I think what's happening here is that God was challenging David's motivation for building the temple. As I shared earlier, there was a certain script that you followed when you were a king in the ancient Near East. And the climactic moment in that script for every king was to build a temple. And at this time, the temple, it was the visible result that the king and all the people and everyone in that day was looking to, to prove to prove that this king and this nation was a success. This was proof of a God's reality and a God's power. And though God does, in verse 12, say, I approve of this project later, he approves of the project with a few important cautions or a few important corrections. In David's prayer, again, he shows that he understands a lot of what God is saying here. And this is how I would summarize it. God is saying, don't measure my work in you or in the world using the dominant cultural scripts for success. By looking at the visible results. For David, that was the temple. And God was saying to David, you can build the temple. He was telling the readers, you can rebuild the temple. You can have a rebuilt temple in your nation. It can be the most impressive outward-looking building in the world, but it could be empty and devoid of my presence. Far more important than the temple is what the temple represented from the beginning, the promise of the presence of God. I mentioned this a couple Sundays ago. I think it's relevant here, too, that we all understand who we are, our identity as a part of a larger story. People call this narrative identity. And in this idea of narrative identity, we all live our lives according to these master narrative scripts. And we judge ourselves by how well our life is matching up to that script. As in David's time, in the time of those who read this, we live in a culture where the dominant script is results-oriented. You are what you do, you are how well you do it. Do good in school, then you get to go to a good college. You get to do well in college, so you get the right job and a good job. Get married, have a good marriage, have kids, move up the ladder, buy a house, eventually retire, 
And the script goes on. What this passage is showing us is that there is another script by which we can live. I want to just contrast these two scripts. There's the results-oriented narrative of success that is driven by performance and visible results. Do I have the degrees that I should have? Do I have the right job? Am I married? Do I have a house? Do I own it? Do I have enough success and achievements and investments and stuff? All of that is the results-oriented narrative of success. And some of us are so results-oriented, we can't stand it when there's not a clear winner to something. Like if your kids play sports or especially if they play t-ball or in the younger ages, parents, and they just say, we're not keeping score at this level. You say, what? Not keeping score at this level? What, what kind of game is this? This is sports. And you're the type of person you're just secretly tracking the score so that you can tell your child, you won. Did you know your team won? We're so embedded in this narrative, this results-oriented narrative. There is another narrative that this passage offers us for us to live our lives by. And I would call it, put it up on the screen, the relational-oriented narrative of presence. This story, this narrative is not driven by results. It's not driven by our performance. It's driven by promise. It's driven by the covenant that God makes with us. And at the heart of it is one question, am I growing closer in my love for God and in my love for the people that God has put into my life? At the end of our lives, you know, none of us will say, when we're taking our last breath, someone get my degrees. I want to see those. Someone bring all the accomplishments out. I need to see my bank statement one last time before I go. No, we'll want the people we love gathered close and near to us. We might ask for people to pray so that we might sense the closeness of God. God is saying, don't put my temple into your results-oriented narrative. It is meant to be assigned to the world of a new story, a new narrative altogether. A narrative of presence, a narrative of dwelling. God dwells with his people, not because of their religious performance, but because I've made a promise. This is my covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. The gospel says that in Jesus, this promise came to its fullest reality. In John 1.14, it says, God came and he dwelt with us and we beheld his glory. In the gospel, the relationship always precedes the results. And the most important results are always the product of a relationship. So in the moments when we're experiencing the gap, those are times for us to shift and to ask ourselves, what narrative is molding my life? What narrative is forming my perspective when I feel the gap between what I think should be and what is? And to ask ourselves, am I drawing closer to God? Am I leaning into Him? to love and trust Him more? Am I clinging to the promise that God gives me, no matter the visible results in my life, that He will always be with me? Renewal can come to us when that results narrative fails us, which I mentioned before. 
when we are living the results narrative. We have all the visible results, but we're still empty. Or when we fail the narrative, when we don't feel like we measure up, when we experience failure. Those are the moments in our lives where God can break through and remind us it's not about the results. It's about relationship. So we can ask ourselves, what narrative is driving me? Thirdly, last, the promise and achievable results. When we experience disappointment in life or disillusionment, discouragement, when we're in this gap in those moments in our lives, we tend to have a couple knee-jerk responses. We say, what am I doing wrong? What can I do right now to fix this so I don't have to live in this gap? Or we could say, I've done everything I've known to do. These things aren't working. My faith isn't working. And we become resigned to inaction. Both of these reactions have something in common. And that is they're, they're grasping and they're looking for some achievable results. Either I can do it, just give me something to do, or forget it, I can't do it. I can't see any way out of this. So what do we need in those moments? To live a life of meaning and purpose. This passage shows us that what we need and what we can realize in those moments is life is not built around what we have done, what we are doing, what we will do. But life is meant to be built around God, around what He has done, is doing, and will do. And what we need most in those moments is to regain a vision of a God who keeps His promises. That's where hope comes. That's where renewal comes. If you look at verses 7 through 14, middle schoolers and high schoolers, you can just do a project here for me. Verses 7 through 14 in your bulletin, just underline if you have a pen, all the times you see the word I. You can share with me how many you counted. How many I's can you see there? This is the most obvious feature of verses 7 through 14. There are no commands in this passage, but there's an overwhelming emphasis on God speaking in the first person. He says to David, here's what I did, I took you. Here's what I have done. Here's what I declare. Here's what I will do. Eleven times, I know that, I counted that. You can check my math. In this passage, I will. 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 It seems as if David needed a reminder. Maybe his success, his prosperity went to his head. And he was coming at this with a look what I have achieved and what I will achieve next in my life. And God reminds you, I took you from the pasture. You were just a shepherd. I have been with you. I have cut off your enemies before you. Remember, David, where you came from. And then he gives him a promise that is completely out of his hands. It was impossible for David to achieve because it was about things that would happen after he died. God said, my promise is that your son will build my house. Your son will have a kingdom and a throne that lasts forever. Initially, this is fulfilled by Solomon, David's son. But if you go from David and you fast forward 600 years to the people who are reading Chronicles, to whom this story was written, this was even more impossible to them. There were no descendants of David around that anybody could see. 
that could step up would be the fulfillment of this promise. Why is this written to them then? Wouldn't that make it worse? God is saying, your hope for renewal and joy and meaning is found in a descendant of David. God promised it, and they're looking around and saying, well, there's no one here. God will keep his promise, this passage is saying, even when it seems impossible. Many years later, there was a young woman named Mary. An angel came to this young woman and said, you're going to give birth to a son. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Israel forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What makes Christianity unique, what makes the gospel a unique message is this, that what God calls us to do and wants for us is inachievable. It is impossible. All other approaches to life will say, here's the goal. It's achievable. It's up to you to do it. And many of you in your companies or in your life as you're setting goals, you are encouraged to make smart goals, right? Make smart goals, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, timely. But the gospel tells us the only way for us to experience renewal is to have unsmart goals, goals that are impossible for us to achieve. And renewal comes to us when we realize that although God's goals for us are unachievable in our own wisdom, in our own ability, in our own strength, then we're in the perfect place when we realize that, to fully depend on God's promise, on God's presence, on God's power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promise. We thank you for the promise that has been fulfilled. And we thank you for the promises that have yet to be completed. We struggle in the gap when it seems like your promises are impossible, they're so far out of reach, our experience of them is so, so small. And I pray you would work this morning a renewal of trust and hope and joy in our hearts that you are not only the promise-making God, but you are the promise-keeping God. And that you meet each one of us where we're at to strengthen us, to renew us, and to remind us that because of what you have already done, we can trust you to complete the good work that you began. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.